I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. GM, I'm Dan Roberts. I'm Stacey Elliott. And this is GM from Decrypt. All right, GM Stacy, big guest today. We've got the Mooch. We do. Anthony Scaramucci of Skybridge and Salt. And, you know, just sound bites, man. This That's he's right. a sound bite machine. He is. Uh <laughs> I am I'm sure he's gonna bring the fire. Interviewing him is like trying to um ask questions of a freight train because he'll spin off into six different things, but it's all great and interesting. Uh, but you know, he, he tends to really, uh, get revved up, you know, that's not even to mention the, the politics of all this. I mean, some people, we, we knew Scaramucci from the finance world long before he Mm -hmm. was ever kind of associated with Donald Trump. Um, he was a big hedge fund name. He would go on CNBC, goes on media a lot. Then of course he served for what was like 14 days, some kind of punchline short amount of time. 11 days in the Trump administration. And even since then, he's lived a number of lives all over again, one of which was close business associate of Sam Bankman-Fried. I mean, I was at uh, Salt New York, which is Skybridge's you know, line of events, uh, just seven short months ago when they announced that FTX Ventures was going to buy a 30% stake in Skybridge, Anthony's hedge yeah. fund. Well, obviously that's all done. Yeah. And I mean, who who would have turned that down when you think about, you know, the setting, the time, the reputation that Sam and FTX had? I right. right. I mean, I I don't want to pretend it's not bad for him, the the relationship he had with Sam and then the way things played out there. But, you know, who's gonna not take that right. check? No, and he's hardly the only person who's now answering for why were you hoodwinked by this person? Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure he'll go off if we even mention Sam and he'll Mm. have a lot to say, but I also want to ask him like, you know, what are the other things in crypto you believe in? He's been quite an evangelist, uh, but not a Bitcoin maxi. I mean, he's into some random things. Like you go to salt and there's a ton of branding for Algorand of all things. He's written like a little book on Algorand, you know, why that one? So yeah. Let's definitely ask him about that it's too. It's literally called the genius of Algorand, which is, you know, just very <laughs> hyperbolic. Like that's a strong endorsement. So we got to yeah. ask him about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's just get into it. We'll bring on Anthony Scaramucci. Okay. Anthony Scaramucci, GM. Welcome. Hi. Hey, it's good to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. Hi, Stacy. Thanks for coming on. Uh, let's start this way. There's a lot we want to talk about. We will get into so many different specific things, uh, but let's start this way. Are you right now, and this is a question I know we've all been asked too, considering everything that has happened in the crypto space in the last year plus, are you still as bullish as you've ever been? And and what would you say to someone who kind of questions that? 
Well, I mean, listen, I'm not a cult figure in this space. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not one of these religious figures uh, that's going to chant Bitcoin Uber Alice, no matter what is going on in life. Uh, and so I want to frame it from that perspective and then tell you that I'm more bullish now than I've ever been. And I want to explain why, though, because I think there's grounds for it. Uh, you've gone through four boom bust cycles in Bitcoin. Uh, therefore, four boom bust cycles and other cryptocurrencies, they seem to coincide with the mechanics of the program where you're heading for another halving, which will likely take place in April of next year. So 12 short months from now. And you've had awareness. Uh, I would say 2022, uh, let's say January 2021 to the end of 2022 was Bitcoin awareness. So uh, prior to that, there was sort of a microbrewery known as Bitcoin and people liked the beer that was coming out of the microbrewery. And then all of a sudden it had this Budweiser like distribution explosion where everyone in the world and their mother was talking about Bitcoin. And it had a boom bust cycle like it did the other three or four periods of time, but it had a way more exaggerated boom bust cycle because the media was focused on it and more people owned it, more wallets were out there. Um, and then of course, what happened almost right on time is the intersection of fraud and over leverage, which always happens in the age of new technology. We saw that happen in the year 2000 with web one. We saw that happen with the robber barons in the 1890s. We had the panic of 1907. I could name to you all the different crises that we've had in financial markets. Most of them are born from either manipulation, leverage, fraud, or the adoption of a new technology that people are experiencing. And I don't want to leave out of this story. If you don't mind, I'll just keep going because the meme stocks are also part of this story. Uh, why is that? Well, the technology that we have now can create a bee swarm. And so 10, 15 years ago, centralized hedge fund managers could make single stock decisions and they wouldn't necessarily have this counteraction by a bee swarm because they probably didn't have the technology, the Zooming, the Instagram, the iMessaging, all the different things that these guys use to counteract in the market. So I couldn't be more bullish. You've had the FTX debacle, which I've lived through and obviously was a victim of. You've had the Celsius debacle, Luna debacle, BlockFi debacle. You have Gary Gensler, uh, the real live Jiminy Cricket. I guess he looks like Jiminy Cricket, and so he's taking it out on the rest of us because of that. I don't know. Uh, none of the stuff that he does makes any sense to me. He's got the SEC in complete disarray, and he's made a decision alongside of the president of financial services, uh, the shadow president, the 200-year-old grandmother of George Washington, known as Elizabeth Warren. So we have a 200-year-old fossil, and we have an angry white male in charge of the SEC that wants to destroy financial innovation in the country. So I don't know. We've lived through a lot of different weird things. There's probably, I don't know, maybe Mercury's in retrograde. I don't know what the hell is going on, but normal things are not happening. And yet, despite all of this abnormalcy and some predictable fraud and predictable over leverage, Bitcoin's sitting at 28,000. And so if you zoom out, this is an incredibly sturdy 
bizarrely anti-fragile asset class, and it's probably going to be forty or fifty thousand by the end of the year. I knew you weren't going to disappoint. How's that for an introduction, Daniel? Yeah. Was that okay? I mean, I just pretty solid. Gave you the, I, I clicked the twelve, tw- oh, clicked twelve gauge. Okay, that's the introduction. Okay, that's where we are right now. You know. <laughs> But I'm still wearing my suit. I just want to point out that Stacy and Dan are dressed like billionaires. <laughs> and unfortunately, I am only a billionaire in one country. That's sure. Zimbabwe, where it takes about $15 billion to cross town in a cab. Zimbabwe dollars, that is. Um, I, I do want to quickly appreciate your microbrewery uh, analogy yeah. for the way Bitcoin kind of blew up. Um, so you... There's so much to unpack there. Uh, you do also have a direct line to a bunch of institutional investors. So there's how you see and look at the yeah. markets and what's going mm-hmm. on right now. But I'm curious to know what you're hearing from other folks who maybe aren't as bullish or, you know, the hoodie wearing <laughs> Bitcoin people who are talking to you and are like, well, why aren't you more bullish? You know, what are you hearing from other folks? Well, listen, the, you you have guys in the industry like the Novogratzes and Pete Brigger and some big institutional guys. Novogratz is interesting to me because he's like an individual. Uh, what do I mean by that? He's rich enough and he's scaled to be an institution, but he thinks like an individual. So I think you get an interesting mix of things going on with uh, Mike. Um, you've got the sailors of the world, but then up against them, you have the Charlie Mungers and the Jamie Diamonds, and you have that world. And you also have the regulatory world. Remember, the the money center banks and the regional banks are under siege right now, and they're going to once again need Washington. And so if Washington's shadow president for financial services is Elizabeth Warren, well, you better believe that these CEOs are going to call Bitcoin a decentralized pet rock, and they're going to say it's venereal disease, and they're going to do whatever Washington would like it to do. I mean, Jamie Dimon is probably the smartest person in financial services history since the original J.P. Morgan. And there's no way if you got him unplugged and you got him with true serum in him that he would say to you that Bitcoin is a decentralized pet rock. But when he says it on the air on CNBC or your wonderful podcast, he's sending a message to regulators that I'm with you. I'm going to take my matched sale because all these big businesses, these big institutions, like a matched sailing race, they're looking at each other's sales and they're trying to coordinate their sailboats pursuant to way the sailboat in front of them is to see which way the wind is blowing. And so they're blowing against Bitcoin right now and cryptocurrencies because the regulators are blowing against them. Um, interestingly enough, uh, we're an investor in the BlackRock Bitcoin Trust, that's Skybridge. Um, and the BlackRock Bitcoin Trust was started because... I think one of the most commercial people in our industry is Larry Fink. And Larry Fink has decided that he is now finally hearing rumblings of institutional demand for Bitcoin. And so he started that. We made an investment in that as a sign of good faith, sort of a first mover. Uh, He's also teamed up with Coinbase. He's using their risk management technology to help his institutional clients look at crypto assets, Bitcoin specifically, and Ethereum. And then I think it's very important to talk about Fidelity. You know, Fidelity's got seven trillion U.S. dollars. Uh, one short year ago, they announced a rollout of uh, Bitcoin as an asset cash. You can purchase up to five percent of your 401k in Bitcoin through Fidelity. 
I'm very proud to tell you guys that Skybridge Capital was one of the pilot companies where we rolled with them. I think it was probably 10 companies, us included, where our 401k, and we we contribute to that from a profit participation to the maximum allowable by law. And it's up at Fidelity now. You can buy their funds or S&P or different things, but you can also buy Bitcoin. And so when they did that in the 1980s, and they allowed the 401ks to move into the stock market, it had an explosive effect on stocks. And if you talk to the Fidelity Digital Asset people or the BlackRock people, they would say that there's little to no demand institutionally as of right now, but there's rumblings of demand. There are people looking, there are people thinking. Last point, and that has to do with Grayscale. If you tell me that Grayscale is going to win this court case and there will be a cash ETF in our market, in the United States, the most mature financial services market in the world, if there is a cash ETF, I think the floodgate of institutional demand will open because every wealth management firm will need to have a cash Bitcoin ETF. How are they going to go pitch a piece of business? And the billionaire that just sold his business says, well, what's your digital asset strategy? Oh, I'm sorry. We think it's a decentralized pet rock. Okay, well, fine. They'll go to the next purveyor of product because these are basically commodity products. Now, that's a big if, right, Anthony? I mean, the, the ETF, Bitcoin ETF, it mm-hmm. just... Under the current regime, they just do not want to allow it. So I think it's a, I think it's a big, I think it's a big win. I don't think it's a big if. I think yes, the current regime could say no. They could lose this court case. They're going to appeal it, obviously, to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is uh, objectively quite conservative. They probably are not going to be in love with the administrative overreach. Um, obviously, these things are politically driven. We're all smart enough on this podcast to know that. So. Maybe they lose the case um, and maybe they lose at the Supreme Court. But I'm going to tell you what they're not losing is in the court of public opinion. There are 77 million people, according to Coinbase, in this country that have a wallet, cryptocurrency wallet. As those wallets grow and as the people vote with their money, guys, you guys know that. And so as the wallets grow, people are going to like, okay, wait a minute. What's your position on Bitcoin? Oh, okay. And, you know, I'm not saying they're going to be single issue voters. I'm certainly not a single issue voter. But if you told me I had two really good candidates, one was pro crypto and the other was Elizabeth Warren like in crypto, I'm voting for the pro crypto one. So you're, you know, you're at the breaking of a dam. Okay. Bitcoin uh, this year, I guess you guys tell me, I think it's up like 70 ish percent this year. Everyone said it was going to 3,000 and it was falling off the earth. And so then, of course, it went up 70%. Uh, I'm not tooting my own horn, by the way, because I've been wrong about everything. And as I said, when we started, I've had five financial obituaries written about me. I have another one, I think, coming out shortly where I'm a terrible human being and should be stoned. And I appreciate all that. But I came out of Davos and I did say, um, people said to me, well, what was your takeaway from Davos, Switzerland? The 3,000 elites on the mountaintop. I said, well, the 3,000 elites on the mountaintop effing hate Bitcoin. And they have decided that they not only effing hate Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is dead and it's completely irrelevant. And so not only are they bearish on Bitcoin, they're chiseling a tombstone 
you know, it opened on October 31st of uh, 2008, and it died the day Sam Brankman Fried declared bankruptcy, November the 11th, 2022. So Bitcoin was dead uh, coming out of Davos. And so I came down from Davos. I said, okay, Bitcoin's going up. That was my conclusion from Davos because these people told me in 2007 that the world was going to grow forever. We've solved all of our monetary policy problems. In 2009, in 2009, January, the world was opening. All of us were falling into the center of the earth and going to be melted by the earth's core. Uh, in 2016, uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was going to resoundingly win the presidency. But then, of course, in 2020, Donald Trump, 77% of the respondents said he would be resoundingly elected president, re-elected president of the United States. So, so to me, you know, the elites still hate this shit. The, the institutions are not ready, uh, but the world's ready. You know, there are three and a half billion people that are unbanked in the world. Uh, they've lost the confidence in their governments as it relates to their governments giving them their currency. And, and, and let's remind people what the currency actually is. What is the currency? It is a technology that we're using between each other. Okay, people say to me, well, Bitcoin is worthless. Okay, let me, I brought props for the crypto thing here. Here we go. Let's look at these. You see those? We, we call this bad, uh, bad radio because we're showing <laughs> yeah. something, but yeah. there's a video version as well. All right. Well, okay. Sure. But these are hundred dollar bills. Okay. Cause obviously you, okay. Or in my neighborhood, they're known as Italian singles. You see those? Okay. Those are hundred dollar bills. And let's just talk about this. This is made out of cotton and it's made out of linen. And so if you Google it, what's a hundred dollar bill made out of 75% of it is cotton, 30 you know, 25% of his linen. You got a little bit of a counterfeit strip on it, but is that worth anything? I mean, if we're back in freshman philosoph philosophy class, it's not worth anything, but we've attached value to it. We were using it as a technology to avoid charter. But I, I just know that the smartest people in the world know that we've now created a technology that is immutable. This, uh, the government can make trillions of dollars of this, which distorts your savings account. It weakens your purchasing power. Uh, but we now have a technology that is completely decentralized. And so you don't have to trust anybody because of the way it's created. So therefore, it's trustless and you don't need a third party to get it from. And so all of a sudden, well, wait a minute, that's immutable and I can use that. And last time I checked, if I study the 5,000 years of money, all money is is really a database. It's an asset liability database. And you're telling me we've got one that's, uh, I mean, it's one of the more beautiful pieces of technology. It's a perfect database uh, that can be trusted because no one has to trust it. Okay. And what did Nakamoto say in the white paper? You know, if you don't believe or don't get it, I don't have the time to explain it to you. I'm sorry. But you may want to buy a little bit of this because it it might catch on. He was saying that at a half a penny. It's twenty eight thousand as we're speaking, and uh, and and by the way, it's a very small asset. You know, it's a five hundred billion dollar asset. Gold is, I think, right now it's at a all, you know, nearing an all time high. I think it's probably a thirteen trillion dollar asset. And Bitcoin, arguably, in my opinion, is better than gold. How could Bitcoin not be as forget about Dan is an old fart. I mean, let's just call it for what it is, okay? We have a little bit of ageism on your podcast. I am a very old fart. 
Stacy, you look like a very, very young person. So let me tell you what's going to happen. Your generation is going to, the earth is going to rotate around the sun 10 more years. And your generation is totally fully going to accept Bitcoin and other digital assets as property of real value. Okay. The same way my, my mentor, Ken Langone does not read his emails. He's 87 and he has his assistant read the emails and then he barks out dictation to respond to them. Okay. You just forget it. He's not going to do it, but there's someone being born today, 30 years from now, will have Bitcoin in their smartphone wallet. And, uh, you know, if I'm still alive, I'll be 200 and no one will care about me, but the world will have moved on and this asset will be 15 to $20 trillion. And someone will go back to this podcast and say, geez, why, why didn't we take that seriously? Well, the powers that be don't like change. The horse and buggy developers don't like horseless carriages. The, the people that were in the rail system, uh, when the Wright brothers discovered flight, they said, well, that's not going to work. You're, there's never going to be any commercial application for aviation. Uh, take yourself back to 1918. Uh, the Wright brothers uh, discovered flight or figured it out in 1903. Red Sox uh, won the title. Red Sox won the title. 15 years later, there were cynics uh, in, in the world that said, ah, there'll never be any commercial application for aviation. Bitcoin is 15 years old. So uh, it's still a very nascent, very new technology. And uh, But here's the thing, guys. It is a better technology. And anytime you've had something that's made something better, it, it eventually gets adopted and it's used. The horse and buggy, they're just fine, but the horse has to be fed. It gets tired. The car doesn't get tired. They have to change the tires, but it doesn't get tired. And I can give you countless examples of why, even though it may start out small and it may not be that big of a big deal, it becomes a big deal. Amazon, we were told, was just going to be an internet bookseller. It traded at a valuation larger than Sears Roebuck. And that was astounding to people. I mean, Sears Roebuck, this storied retailer with real assets, how could Amazon be more valuable than it? And Sears Roebuck is out of business and Amazon's got 55% of the internet retail, 5% of all retail in the United States. So I don't know. I'm, I'm going to bet forward growth. I'm going to bet the technology. And so, yeah, no, I'm more bullish than ever, but I'm not Bitcoin Jesus, like some of these people, you know, I'm not Bitcoin St. Paul. I'm just an objective observer of what's going on. And I recognize the change is happening and I want my clients and I want my firm to be a part of it. But I will say this to you guys, it has come at a cost to me because uh, the media doesn't like it. Uh, the politicians, some of them secretly like it, but most of them do not like it. And so I've become a Bitcoin, I'm not Bitcoin Jesus, but I've become a Bitcoin crash dummy. Uh, and I've been thrown through the windshield a few times uh, because of what's gone on in the industry. And then, of course, we haven't gotten to Sam Bankman Freed, but that was a big, I've made some big mistakes in my career, uh, but that was a big mistake. You know, I, I trusted him and liked him and I totally missized him. And, you know, I, listen, I have to own that. I have to be accountable for that. Yeah. 
he he is on our list. But before we get there, I, I want to ask you about the the unbanked argument that is often used when kind of, you know, talking about the value proposition for Bitcoin. Um, there are a lot of people who are unbanked, but there are also people who say that because they're unbanked, this is a really, you know, uh, uh, this is a population that can sometimes almost feel like it's being preyed upon or kind of used to make political arguments for Bitcoin when there are no guardrails or regulations right. kind of in place yet. And so you could kind of argue about what needs to come first. Yes, of course, those mm -hmm. people need banking options, but what kind of recourse do they have if something goes wrong? And, you know, we've seen plenty of frauds, scams, Ponzi schemes, rug pulls, all kinds of stuff. So how do you reckon that? Because, yeah, they need banks, but they need protection, too. So I think it's, it's a brilliant question, Stacey. So I, I just want to step back and lay out a framework first. So uh, it's the Wild West in Bitcoin. It's very reminiscent to the early banking era in the United States. And then remember, back in the 1920s, after the banking crisis uh, sort of evolved, what was going on in the Congress, we were interviewing banksters and we had very derogatory statements being made about banksters who stole people's money or they were over levered or they didn't set up their fractional reserve accounts properly. And there was no regulation. And so people were super mad, super angry. A lot of that's going on in Bitcoin today. Uh, we used to have incredibly smart politicians. That's why the country became great. The founding fathers and mothers set it up a certain way. Guys like Lincoln and Roosevelt figured out that they could make it grow. And Franklin Roosevelt, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, he was a brilliant guy and a great president. He had a horse sense about him. And so what he said was, well, I don't really understand what we need to do, but there are people that understand what we need to do. Why don't we hire the foxes, put them in charge of the hen house, and let us figure out how to protect the hens from other foxes? I mean, that's basically what he said. He wouldn't hire Joseph P. Kennedy, Jack Kennedy's dad, who was a rank a speculator in the 1920s, knew every trick in the book. And I don't understand why we don't have that common sense approach today. I don't understand why people say, okay, wait a minute. This is part of the arterial structure now of capitalism. This will increase, enhance the flow, potentially help the unbanked, but man, we better make it super safe for them. So how do we go about doing that? And let's go to the community and let's find some of the people, even some of the rogues. Remember, the NSA hires hackers. Okay, They're hacking into a system. The NSA grabs them. The FBI scares them. And they say, okay, you can go to jail and come work for us. Okay, And so I don't, I don't understand why we're not doing what we did in the 1930s, where we came up with the 33 Act and then eventually the, the SEC Act, the Securities Act of 1940. And so you're making a very good point. I think it's very necessary. I don't want to put the unbanked in harm's way in the Wild West, but if I had sheriffs and marshals and we had a self-regulatory organization, which is I've been calling for with my peer group, an SRO like FINRA, and I said, okay, here's the deal. We all know what to do, which is appropriate. We all know what to do, which is inappropriate. Why don't we put some guidelines together, hire an enforcement group like FINRA is to the securities industry. And then we only do business with each other if we're part of the SRO willing to submit ourselves to this level of audit and this level of uh, clearing of a channel, if you will. And then, oh, by the way, here SEC or here CFTC, here are workable rules that would prevent fraud. 
Now, I'm not going to say it's going to eliminate fraud because we're all smart enough to know that you cannot eliminate fraud. Bernie Madoff was one of the most regulated people on earth. The Sackler family and food and drugs are probably even more regulated than securities. And, you know, you're going to have fraud and you're going to have people that game the system no matter what. But we can have a fraud reduction or a system gaming reduction, but it requires that kind of a thoughtful approach. We don't have that. We have tribalism. We have partisan political narratives. And if it doesn't fit that partisan political narrative, we're not going to do it. Uh, This is a left or right uh, semi-solutions-based inertia going on as opposed to a right or wrong. This is the right thing to do versus the wrong thing to do. So, So, you know, look, what did Churchill say about the United States? We always do the right thing after we've exhausted every other possibility. So we're in the exhaustion mode right now. And hopefully we'll get, get, get to a group of people that will say, yeah, this is what we need to do to protect the unbanked. But what, but disaster, disaster. He's a, he's a walking disaster. He's on missile lock. Gensler is part of a different cult. Okay. So if you've got the Bitcoin evangelists, he's the anti-crypto evangelist. Okay. He's decided that this is Elizabeth Warren said to Chuck Todd that this is worthless, at least her art on her wall she can throw darts at. You can't throw darts at a cryptographic code on a computer. And so therefore, definitionally, the art is more valuable than the cryptograph in the computer. And it's just an unbelievably ignorant statement. It's bizarrely naive. Uh, But that is the Sherpa. uh, That is the uh, uh, person that's guiding us now. And Gensler is one of her acolyte. So he's a disaster. He's part of the anti-cult. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm neither. I'm not an evangelist and I'm not a naysayer. I see the technology, the value of the technology. And if smart people get involved to regulate it, it'll work. And, and just think about, you're mentioning the unbanked. So those $100 bills I showed you, there are El Salvadoran expats uh, they live here in the United States, over 150,000 of them. The minister of the economy in El Salvador who visited New York during the UN General Assembly meetings uh, told us that if they can work on a wallet-to-wallet transfer, uh, the El Salvadoran community would save over $400 million U.S. dollars a year. So meaning that unbanked person that we're describing, they walk into Western Union, they say, I want to send $1,000 back to mom in El Salvador. They give them the 1000 Western Union keeps 100, mom gets 900, uh, and the citizens and the expats are out a meaningful sum of money. So when you think about that innovation, a wallet-to-wallet transfer that reduces time and reduces fees, and we know because of the technology, it actually crosses and it's secured over the blockchain, you know, you can unleash a tremendous amount of economic innovation and efficiency. I I own a restaurant here in New York, the Hunt and Fish Club. We have about a 15% gross margin. If we could avoid MasterCard and Visa, uh, we would have a 20% improvement in our gross margin. We'd have a 3% increase in our gross margin. Are you telling me that five years from now, I won't be able to have people in our restaurant that have a maybe a uh, digital dollar, could be a CB, central bank digital currency, it could be a circle-based digital currency or something and my restaurant says, okay, that's great. Here's our wallet. Why don't you transfer from your phone to our wallet value for the food that we just gave you? And oh, by the way, 
uh, we've saved 3%. We're passing that on in terms of slightly lower food and beverage costs and slightly higher salaries for our employees. That's a win-win. And when you have technology that can create win-wins, people figure out ways to get that technology into the system and get it adopted. We'll be right back after this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Anthony, because we touched on Gary there a little bit, let's yeah. look at the political landscape in D.C. I mean, not just Gary and Warren, obviously, but there was a time not that long ago, I don't know, two years, where it seemed like your view on crypto, if you're an elected official, was a nonpartisan issue. There were people on both sides who hated it, people on both sides who said, this is great, let's foster innovation. Lately, I feel like that has changed a little bit. And for whatever reason, it's more GOP folks who are pro-crypto, from Tom yeah. Emmer to Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. And Senator Loomis. Yeah. I mean, you can name yeah. any example you want. Of course, there are examples yeah. on both sides. But then the Dems who are be, like, nah. Ted Cruz is the only redeeming quality, by the way. So I have to stop shitting on Probably not a lot of Cruz for this podcast. But well, so what do you make of this? Cruz. I, 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 you know, I'm not surprised anymore, you know, because, again, we're tribal now. So, you know, Trump, you know, you like or dislike Trump. He does come up with some clever idioms. You know, he said, he once said to me, man, I should just take Chuck Schumer's list, whatever he's for, I should get out there right now and chant and speak that I'm for it. And you watch how quickly they'll be against it. You know, the point is they, they're doing that now to each other, you know, and then they, and then their hypocrisy is obviously exposed. And so, uh, the more hypocrisies that exposed, the more cynicism in the body politic. And so, yes, no, it seems like it's leaning now, Right. Word Rokana, though, is a pro Bitcoiner. He sees the the value in it. There are some Democrats that see the value in it. You know, there's a there's a group of people. There's a voting block. 144 million people last 20 years, they voted the exact same in this country. What is that voting block? Do you know that voting block? That would be the non-voters, ladies and gentlemen, that would be the non-voters. They vote the same because they don't vote. Okay, and so I just want you to think of the magnitude of that. And if you're a political entrepreneur, there's 144 million people registered to vote that do not show up at the polls. And imagine if you were the Jeff Bezos or the Steve Jobs of politicians and you could come up with the product that would invite those people back into the store to make a selection of the product. I just want you to think about the magnitude of that. And how it would upside down the apple cart of what's going on right now. But but these politicians are a bunch of, I mean, they're a pieces of work. I mean, they they have gerrymandered their adversaries and enemies out of their districts. Uh, let me ask you something rhetorically. Are we in a true democracy if the politicians themselves can pick the voters? I thought it was the voters who were supposed to pick the politicians, but not here. Uh, we can go house to house and we can create You know, when I was a kid, these districts looked like geometric shapes you could recognize from ninth grade geometry. They now look like jagged edged jigsaw puzzles 
pieces, and they're all designed by some demographer that said, you know, we we saw the cookies that went into Stacy's uh, computer, and so she's an XYZ party member, and Dan, we saw what went into his mailbox, and so he's a ZYX party member. God forbid if you're an independent, because then you get hit from both sides, you know, you know, with the propaganda and nonsense. So, so I don't know. I mean, we, we, here's another thing. You're talking about politicians. We need some reform in the country. Uh, 27 amendments to the Constitution. It's a living document. There's 246 years since the origination of the country, 216 since the origination or 220 since the origination of the Constitution. Let's go over the math, guys. 27 amendments. That's roughly one amendment every nine years. Yet we have not had a meaningful amendment to this Constitution since the 1965 Voter Act. And so we're destroying ourselves by doing that. The tribalism is excessive. But what would be a couple of amendments that would sort things out for us? Number one, end the gerrymandering. Redistrict by computer, where the districts are roughly even, you'll liquidate the political extremists because all these people are are marketers. Uh, and all these uh, campaigns are marketing competitions. And so they need to sell something, an idea. And if there are people in the district that are primarily a mixture of hard left, hard right, and a mixture of moderates, well, guess what? You're going to have the bell curve of ideas. Okay, so we need a amendment to end the gerrymandering. The second thing is the the campaign finance laws have really hurt us. And uh, you have to be honest about this. It's, uh, it's a lot like Plessy versus Ferguson. And just to remind people what that was, the Supreme Court said separate but equal facilities are acceptable. And so that gave a license for r- high racism and high levels of segregation, which was destroying the country over 80 years. People started the protest. They remanded that with Brown versus Board of Education. So they reversed Plessy versus Ferguson. Citizens United is an example of that. They're under the cloak of the First Amendment. They're saying, no problem. You can pump a billion dollars into a campaign. You have that right. That's your use of your voice. But I think it's very unfair. I think it's created a separate but equal class of influencers and voters, uh, and they need to manage that immediately. And they need a Brown versus Board of Education for this campaign finance situation because it's really gotten out of control. And guess what elites do? They figure out how to game the system to protect themselves. And just take a look at the wealth disparity in the marketplace since the Citizen United Supreme Court case. And you'll say, okay, they're not relevant or connected, but I think they are. And and I think we got to fix that. And if we if we do those things, this is an unbelievable country. It's got a great culture of entrepreneurship, a trustworthy legal system. It's got all the bells and whistles of a great immigration story for two centuries. I mean, I don't know. I mean, the the best days for America could be ahead of it, but we've got to start thinking more practically about America. And I mean, I I don't know why we have 200-year-old fossils defining and deciding the fate of financial innovation in America. I don't don't understand what the hell we're doing with that. And these people have by and large failed the country. They they racked up $30 trillion of debt. They've overpromised. They've They've undertaxed. They've they've set this thing up for a new generation of Americans where they're going to be faced with dealing with all these issues, and then they're still in power. Guys, get off the stage. You sucked at it. 
and you hurt the country, get off the stage, give an opportunity to some of these younger Americans uh, that are more vital, that can come up with fresher ideas and understand where the world is going, not the world that we once had. Yeah. I want to ask about this, this whole marketing thing and just like really trying to game the system and make sure, you know, you've got the support you need to stay, even if you're not really doing anything. Because <laughs> what Elizabeth we Warren has hear... only written one piece of legislation in 10 years. So, yeah. I mean, yes, she's a big mouth and she's a granny with the conversation and the way she moves herself and she's a scold, but she really hasn't done anything for the country. She hasn't helped the country. Yeah. Well, I... So what I, was, I wanted to say, what we often hear from lobbyists, and of course, these are people who are lobbying on behalf of the crypto industry, is that there are lots of people who are actually at least curious, if not actually optimistic about blockchain technology. But to your point, they can't say that or even hint at that publicly. Otherwise, they're going to risk losing a bunch of support. You know, do we need that to change in order to see real progress here? I do think that, yes. I do that. Now, now the, the, the real question, Stacey, is how? How is it going to change? And I don't know the answer to that, but I do think it needs to change. I'm just wondering if, frankly, your generation will be willing to change it. I'm wondering if you won't accept the status quo. Remember what I said? It's a very deep market out there of a single voting block known as the non-voter. Just imagine if we can get a transformative politician to to get those people back in the game, imagine the upside down apple cart that these more traditionalists would face. Now, listen, I, I got my 11 day PhD in Washingtonian nonsense. Okay. These are brutal people. They love power for the sake of power and they want to stay in power. And one of the ways to stay in power is to create these fat tails of extremists on both sides and this chant that creates tremendous cynicism, which causes a lot of apathy and a lot of voter evacuation. And then they screen out their adversaries from their districts and they stay in office for 30, 40, 50. I mean, this guy, Chuck Grassley, I guess he gave birth to Thomas Jefferson. I don't know. I mean, I guess he's going to run for reelection when he's 300. But I mean, come on, man. It's not, it's a bad it, look for the country, guys. I mean, what are you doing? It also, you know, Diane it Feinstein, seems like a- God bless her. I want her to live to be 300. But why don't we only serve like 100 years in the Senate? Now, why do we have to go for the full 300? You know, it's just it's just nonsensical at this point. You know, it seems like there's a carrot, Anthony, that or there used to be a carrot that would motivate both politicians and regulators. And the carrot was if you're not careful, the U.S. will lose out in this area to other countries. I mean, as recently as three or four years ago, when I remember Mark Zuckerberg was testifying and this was long before other Facebook problems, but it was about, you know, the election and stuff. And he was trying to say, you know, if you keep getting in our way, then other countries are going to take advantage and leap ahead of us in this technology. Maybe he said that about Libra when Libra was trying to be shut down. The brain drain. Yeah. yeah. And that doesn't, and, and for a while there, it was like, look, China did a, the digital yuan and hurry up and stop uh, crimping innovation. Lately, that argument doesn't seem to have as much power. They'd rather, no, we're going to cut down on it. We're not that worried about that. I think it's arrogance. Like as a motivational tool. But I think it's arrogance. And so remember, if you want to maintain America's standing in the world, you then have to study history. And then what do you learn from the history? You have to figure out a way to cheat the history. Okay. Because these republics, and as, as 
Ben Franklin said, you have a republic if you can keep it. And we have some idiocy going on in the country now where we're taking for granted what we have. You know, Reagan said 40 years ago, you're always one generation away from losing your freedom. I was too young to understand it at the time because I was taking the system for granted. When you watch people breaking glass at the Capitol building, you're like, okay, I now understand what Ben Franklin was talking about. And so now we've got to get people in the mix that can restate the vision of the country, renew the country, provide guidance that fits this wonderful, beautiful, colorful mosaic of people. The demographic of the country's really changed. Go look. Go look at the 2016 electorate and look at the predicted 2024 electorate. The country's changed dramatically. Uh, and again, I'm not saying it's changed uh, in a way that's bad. Uh, in fact, I think it's probably changed in a way that's good. But let's look at it for what it is. How could the Republican Party sit there in a hard white position? That's basically what it is. Uh, as, as Instead of being entrepreneurs and having their ideas reflect the beautiful, colorful, diverse mosaic of the American people. A good entrepreneur would say, hey, yeah, that was great back in 1948. It doesn't work in 2024. And so- I would argue it wasn't great in 1948. No, 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 no. But it was great for them. <laughs> yeah, it was sure. great for them in terms yes. of them being able to prosecute their political power. Um, no, I'm not saying it was great for the country because too many people were left out. And by the way, that was one year after a seminal event, the uh, introduction of Jackie Robinson to American professional major league baseball, which was a groundbreaking event. And you can't see it here, but I've got a picture of Jackie in my office because uh, Muhammad Ali is behind me. But Jackie is one of my real heroes because I really understand what he went through. And his wife just celebrated her 100th uh, birthday last year. But, but I'm just saying to you, the Republicans have decided, well, we're the party of old white people. And so since old white people are dying off, uh, let's change the rules. If the rules were the whites are going to run the country, uh, we can have a democracy. But if the rights are no longer going to run the country, it's okay with me if we shade and color and change the democracy. I mean, come on, guys. We're better than that. You can't do that. Let's renew the democracy. Let's restate the vision. It'll help you in the cryptocurrency more. Because smart people, you put smart people in, they're going to look at the things and say, okay, we need this. You know, guys, Hong Kong opened for business for crypto. Okay, they're not stupid. They're, oh, the U.S. is going to blow this? That's fine. We're going to switch our position. U.K., they, they screwed up with the Brexit. They all know it. They're open for business for crypto. You know, our supposedly socialist neighbors to the north have two or three cash Bitcoin ETFs. We've got Gary Gensler and Elizabeth Warren, you yeah. know? So let's use this as a chance to talk about Sam. How much worse did he make things in terms of the political landscape? Because the people who are anti-crypto, let's be clear, they already were anti-crypto. They didn't need FTX to happen. But now what's clear is they think they better make obvious to the public we're cracking down. You know, we can't let that happen again. And it's the ultimate irony that he did so much damage because prior to the meltdown, he was Mr. Washington, the envoy of the industry. So uh, talk a little bit about that. And then also, obviously, as you alluded to at the beginning, you had your own relationship with him too. I mean, I was there in the Bahamas at the big glitzy FTX uh, and SALT conference. And obviously that all, you know, crashed. I mean, you know, listen, I, I, I have a lot to say about this. Uh, uh, 
but I'll be brief. I'll just say the following. I think he embarrassed many people in Washington. Um, people have a tendency to revise history when something happens like this. If I take you back to August of 2022, he was a media darling. He was on the cover of Forbes, cover of Fortune. He was a media darling. He was well-received in Washington. He was well-received in the financial institutional community. His parents were tenured law professors. They were also well-received, tenured law professors at Stanford. I liked both of them. I liked Sam. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. Um, I'm not one of these guys to revise history. I think we have also a tendency when people are victims of fraud, the media gets out there and has a drum and beats. Look how stupid these people are. Let me show you the list of people on the Theranos board or the list of Theranos investors. Oh, look at these moron VCs that invested with Sam. Oh, Scaramucci's an imbecile. He accepted $45 million from Sam. I was in some uh, Zoom call three o'clock in the morning because of the time zone in Australia and some woman was uh, uh, degrading me and telling me that I was an imbecile because I had accepted Sam's money and everyone and their mother knew that he was a fraud. And I laughed and I said, so you're telling me that someone offers you $45 million in cash for a piece of your business and they're one of the richest people in the world. You're saying no, you're a better person than me. I said yes to that. And so, you know, I mean, just exposing her hypocrisy, but, but listen, you know, I got it wrong. He had a pristine control room. He had a pristine data room. Uh, he had great attorneys around him. Sullivan and Cromwell represented him in the purchase and sale agreement. Uh, he had very smart compliance people in his office, but he did something that fraudsters do. He insulated himself. He had all of those people as a patina sort of on the outside. And then on the inside, he had two or three people with him. And remember, three of those people have already pled guilty. So guys, when the windows open and you hear clippity-clop outside, it is a zebra or a horse. You tell me. Clippity-clop outside, window open. It's a horse, not a zebra. You can't have your three cohorts in your inner circle plead guilty. You're the only one that's innocent. So, so maybe, but I doubt it. Um, and yes, he's had a dramatically negative impact on the industry. He's shaken the confidence of people in the industry. Uh, he hurt me. He hurt my reputation. I've had three or four blistering articles written about me, and uh, I've got more to come, obviously, on that. Uh, but here's the thing I would tell you, despite all of this, you know, Bitcoin bottomed at 16000 after the SAM debacle was announced, and it's trading at 28000 So, you guys tell me. I like markets. You know, I think the markets are way smarter than me. Uh, the markets, human life has humbled me. Um, and so I don't think I'm the smartest person by any stretch, not even close. But I do like what the market is telling me about where Bitcoin is, given everything that's happened and everything that happened with Sam. And now, now what's at issue, and I think this is always the good news, um, Americans are way safer after 9-11. Now, we can argue and debate the freedoms and the Patriot Act and all the different things, but I can tell you, because I'm close to the intelligence community and I'm close to people in the National Security Network, we're just way safer. We're smarter at disrupting these types of bad actors. I think Sam, Terra Luna, all these different things that happened last year are going to make us way safer and way smarter. I just think we got to get our regulators focused on how to do this so that we can have growth and innovation, as opposed to trying to choke out the crypto 
businesses through a choke point 2.0 or trying to enforce 1930 laws on a 2030 company. You know, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't think we're, we're handling it right. And that's why I'm okay speaking out about it. It costs me. You know, these guys are coming at me with a proctoscope and that's fine. But you know, I'm a big boy. I almost thought we were going to get through an episode without talking about the Howie test, but you know, here we are. <laughs> we hit it on every episode pretty much. Um, you know, I, we, we ask everyone this and I think the answer is always different. Um, do you think it's a valid way to determine what's a security? Cause this is, this is kind of like the big regulatory thing, at least for us right now is kind of this little bit of sniping we see back and forth between the CFTC and the SEC, you know, like in the big thing that just came out from the CFTC taking aim at Binance CZ, you know, they're calling Bitcoin and Ethereum commodities. That's not at all what Gary Gensler has hinted at before. And we oh, still don't we really don't have, know where this is going to land. So what's happening is yeah. you're, you're having decree. You're almost like in an autocracy now where you're having a fiat a decree of what something is. We don't have legislation. The Congress needs to make that decision. And of course, they won't make any decisions anymore. And so these guys are shooting in the dark. But I, I'm going to say something to you. There was a rail system put in place in the 1860s and, you know, they had a transcontinental railroad and then the airline industry was developed. Should we apply the rail system rules at the Department of Transportation to the airlines? I think we know the answer to that is no. We had cars developed prior to the really robust advent of commercial aviation. Should we use the rule book for controlling traffic on the ground uh, and use the exact same rule book for controlling the air traffic? I think we know that the answer to that is no. So we have new technologies that have entered the marketplace that are unique and different, and they may not, when you drop them through the logarithm of the Howey test, they may not come out the way the old securities or the old system was working. And so wouldn't it make more sense to get everybody in a room, uh, professors and trade people and practitioners and regulators, and say, you know, we got to come up with a Howey system 2.0 because we're in a totally new territory. It's a 21st century. And why are we using 20th century rules on a 21st century technology? So, you know, take out the traffic book and let's run the airline system through it. I think, it, I think it's ridiculous. And when you frame it for people like that, they're like, oh my God, well, I mean, that's totally ridiculous. Why are they doing that? And the answer is nobody wants to make a decision and, you know, Gary is the only part. I mean, the guy, I mean, come on, the guy's a white guy from Goldman Sachs and somehow he thinks he's going to be the treasury secretary in the Biden administration now. I mean, if that happens. Well, that's what a lot of this you know, is about. Matt, yeah. Right? If that happens, mazel tov to him. I mean, you know, I, I don't necessarily wish him poor. I mean, it'd be a disaster for me if he's the secretary of treasury, but I think he's the only person in Washington. I mean, unless he's getting a sex change operation. Okay. I don't know. I think he could be the only person in Washington that thinks he's going to be the treasury secretary. So. So keep keep the nonsense up, do all the political posturing in order to curry favor so that you can fulfill your ambition, whatever that may be, or take a step back and make a decision to serve the American people and allow for the United States to maintain its mantle of financial services leadership. Tell me what you guys want to do. Well, you know, I would like to be secretary of treasury no matter what. So let me wreck or at least slow. Well, here's the good news. He can't wreck it. He can slow it down. Great news about this country is that we recirculate these elites. And Gary's a one, two, five-year timer. 
they'll be out of there and there'll be somebody smarter in the position. And then, of course, they will rotate into somebody dumber, right? We had Mayor Bloomberg, and now we had Stugatz, the guy, what was the guy he like? Was He claimed he was Italian, but he wasn't Italian. De Blasio, de Blasio. right? He used that name to try to get himself elected. And now at least we got Eric Adams trying to fix it, but he can't fix it because he's got this lunatic Kathy Hockall who, you know, wants to let everybody roam, all the criminals roam around free. You know, but then they're going after Trump. I mean, these guys are um, these guys are pieces of work. You know, I don't like Trump, but this these charges are fucking bullshit. I mean, you know, it's just it's just ridiculous. So so you guys tell me what we're doing. We need new leadership. I would like Stacey to run for mayor, governor <laughs> and then eventually president and right. fix it because it's going to be her generation that does it, not us. Forget it. We we we've already got letter grade F on this stuff. So if we could pretend that this weren't very political and we could try to take some of the politics out of mm. what is Bitcoin, what are Bitcoin and Ethereum, would you even categorize them as the same thing if we had to choose between commodity and security? And well, do Bitcoin you think the is, industry Bitcoin does better a, with one or the other? Yeah, well, Bitcoin is definitely a commodity. I think that uh, I think it feels like money to me and feels like a commodity. I think that these things that earn or you have these staking positions where the foundations give you more of something. Um, you know, I think anything that has an earning mechanism to it probably is a security. But again, let's talk about what the goals are. Let's talk about why these things were created and what they're going to do to advance our economy. And then I can help you formulate the rules. And I may get some things wrong, but what I'm willing to do is compromise, you see? And I think that we've lost our ability to do that. So you could be a hardliner and tell me X, Y, Z. And then, you know, I mean, you've got these Bitcoin maximalists. They have no willingness to compromise. They have guns and ready-made food in their basement and they hate the government. And then you got the government that wants to shove a uh, an Apple AirTag up your you-know-what so they can keep track of you all over the place. And so, you know, those people are never getting along or getting together. But I have a, uh, I, I would like to get the people in the room and say, what is absolutely necessary to you and what's necessary to you? Here's a bridge where we can form a compromise. And this is how we can get some good quality legislation in the works that can keep the United States growing. You know, people are saying, well, they, they, they fear the supremacy of the dollar. And so they're going to choke point the industry. You all, let me tell you, you'd be way better served of creating all those jobs, all that innovation, all those tax revenues here in the United States. Make the, you, 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 you want to protect the dollar? Make the United States the fortress economy, the go-to economy of the world. We've got the natural resources, the intellectual capital, the university system. We have the legal system. We have a decentralized form of government, which makes it sturdier than these other, other governments, allows for more meritocracy. We know that our sociologists tell us in autocracies, you have a stultification and you have a caste system. In decentralized democracies, you have more of a meritocracy. Not to say that it's perfect, but it's way better. Why can't we do that? Why can't we make the country stronger, create more jobs, grow the country? And then, of course, the dollar will stay, stay supreme for the next hundred years. And not that there won't be a role for Bitcoin, but why not do that? Why not have a 15-year plan to reduce the deficit spending so that people think we're serious about it? You know, we, we, we created it over the last 15 years. Let's have a 15-year plan to reduce it. We, we know how to grow things. We know how to innovate. 
we can reduce our percentage of GDP. We've done it before. Had 135% debt to GDP coming out of World War II, crushed it down to 50%. We can do that, but you got to have a plan. Plus the number... The number of people who think, you know, that the point of Bitcoin is for it to replace the dollar is shrinking. It's sort of moving. I don't think it, I don't, but Um, I don't, I mean, that's never been my statement. I've never said that it was a store of value. I never said it was an inflation edge. I said it is a new technology that is adapting and growing. And could it replace the dollar? I don't see how it could replace the dollar, but could it be a store of value akin to gold? I believe it could be. Uh, And that's the reason why I'm in it. That's my investment thesis for it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, this has been so much fun, Anthony. We don't want to keep you too much longer. I want to end on this, though. I didn't you have know, enough you coffee. Said... I feel like I was a little under-caffeinated in the conversation, no? <laughs> I didn't as, tell. Well, as you, you made the reference just now to Bitcoin maxis, which you know is not you. Right. Um, it still feels to me like when we look at the I crypto I love them, though, because and... I love their passion, but I mean, it's just, I'm not sure. that. Sure. Um, but you know, it's, it's like when we look at you know Terra Meltdown and, and Celsius and all these things that have their own tokens it's sort of a risky game to pick winners and losers of this blockchain will succeed and live on. And this one won't, you know, one of the things that you are a huge bull on is like Algorand. I mean, you know, so you've got your, your tickers Mm -hmm. and coins that you think are legit and are going to succeed. What's your sort of next few years outlook on, on which ones those are? I guess I'm asking what's in your bag and, and why those? So again, so I'm not a Bitcoin maxi because I look at Algorand's, the technical properties, so the weird thing about Algorand, and you're probably old enough to know this, so Apple had a better operating system than Microsoft by far. But Apple had a 3% market share. Microsoft, with the help of IBM and IBM compatible computers, had a 97% market share. So what do we know is that the technology may not necessarily be the best technology, but it could be the one that gets adopted. And so my thing with Algorand is, okay, that's the Apple operating system. That does it doesn't go down. It's very fast. It's very cheap. It's green. Uh, Silvio McCallie did a beautiful job mechanizing it. I wrote a book about it called "The Technical Elegance of It" or "The Technical Genius of It." And and uh, I love that coin or whatever you want to call it token. And so we own it. Now it hasn't done well, but it's in down in line with the rest of the bear market. I own Casper Labs CSPR. Uh, why did I make that investment? I made that investment because they are in the enterprise software services business. And I believe that we're going to decentralize that business. I think that the new generation of people are going to be less reliant on central authorities for their data and their enterprise software needs. And I believe we're going to decentralize that. And I think Casper is the leading engine for that. And so that token is almost just like an AWS credit on that system. And I think that that if that token catches off, it'll be popular and people will use it. And instead of owning stock in, you know, Salesforce.com or Amazon, you own the token. You know, it's a a way to participate in Casper's growth and development. Uh, Solana is a very fast chain. Goes down a lot. It's a very fast chain. Uh, I owe Sam Bankman-Fried for that. He introduced me to those guys. I like those guys. Uh, They're up against it because I think Sam, the bankruptcy estate owns a piece of it. The good news for them, it'll take years for that to unwind. The bad news for them is a little bit of a bullet in front of them, but it's a super fast chain. And so if we eventually trade stocks and bonds and we tokenize them, could something like an Algorand or Solana be the chain that we do it on? I don't think we're going to do that on Bitcoin. Uh, Two other quick tokens. I own 
Vulcan Forged. Uh, the symbol is PYR. It is a decentralized Web3 gaming platform. I took my wife to Athens to visit the gaming studio. A gentleman by the name of Jamie Thompson is running that. I think you're going to hear a lot about him because he's a visionary. He's also a specialist in AI, and he's developed these very interesting games like the Robloxes of the world. And he has a token called PYR that you use inside the game. And so if you've got young kids, it's like Robux, but it's called PYR. He's also developed off of PYR a layer one uh, protocol, layer, layer one coin called Elysium. All of this stuff is around the Greek gods, which is why he's got it based in Athens. And obviously Athens is a very cheap place to live and they're, they're having a very good lifestyle there. I visited them. And so I like that a lot. And the last one is Bitcoin. Those are those are my holdings inside of Skybridge. I have a, you know, I, ha I have some Ethereum as well. I was so just about to say no ETH. No, I, I, I apologize. That's a, in fact, I own more ETH than the others. Sure. I, I, I gave it to you in uh, this uh, ascending order, Algo, Casper, Solana, Vulcan, Forge, mm -hmm. Bitcoin, and Ethereum. Got it. Nice. Nice. Do you own any well, NFTs? Can I ask real quick before we close? Yeah, I so I, I, I don't own any <laughs> NFTs personally at this time. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a son who's also named Anthony. He's minting an NFT collection on the Algorand network. And so if you invite me back on in a few months, I'll tell you, man, I own a shitload of NFTs because <laughs> I'm going to be buying them from this kid known as Anthony Scaramucci. Okay. Nice, nice. Good luck to him. Well, great. Great chat, Anthony. It's always great to have you on. All right, guys. Thank you. That's our show today. Thanks for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to GM wherever you podcast. And if you head to our website, decrypt.co, you can find the full videos of every interview with every guest. Finally, we have a Telegram room for our loyal GM listeners. The address is t.me slash GM podcast. If you pop in there, you can get direct access to the co-hosts. You can suggest future guests, submit comments, and ask questions. It's t.me slash GM podcast. GM. GM.